Today, we're going to take a look at HempFest Online. Uh, eventually, I'm going to end up showing you guys about the panel, which was cannabis and psychedelics. But first up, let's just kind of take a look around this website and show you what HempFest looks like online. Welcome back to The Talking Hedge. I'm Josh Kincaid, Capital Markets Analyst and host of your Cannabis Business Podcast. Today, we're going to take a look at HempFest online this year. Obviously, due to the pandemic and everything else, they couldn't do it in August like they normally do. So it is online. We're going to take a look and see what they're doing this year. we got a couple of tabs here, sponsors and schedule, the Vendor Village, memberships in the shop. You can donate and also uh, register to vote. So it looks like some of the sponsors, you know, Futurola, House of Cannabis, Wilfred the Dog, looks like he's got some pre-rolls going on, Cannabis Alliance, Marijuana Venture Magazine, Leaf Nation, Washington Bud Company. You can register to vote. You can also donate. You can also go to their shop. So this is a two-day event, so they're not showing what was available on Saturday, but as of today, they've got some music venues like they would normally have, not as many, and also some speaking engagements as well. Bone Thugs and Harmonies apparently showing up. This is all online, so this isn't really anything that's live or in one particular studio, so they can kind of take advantage of the situation, I guess, and, and get people like Bone Thugs and Harmony that wouldn't maybe otherwise go to Seattle. They can just record from wherever they're at. One of the biggest things about HempFest that you would notice is beside the music, you'd also see a lot of vendors. So checking out some of the, the vendor village, a lot of glass companies. I think that's one of the biggest things people kind of show up to uh, HempFest to kind of take a look at what kind of glass is available. They want to get a big HempFest four foot bong or whatever. Uh, it's a big thing. Interesting that they have a dispensary. Let's check this out and see what happens when we go to this dispensary website. Intro to joint rolling, part one and two. Okay, well, that's interesting. So I thought would maybe go to um, cannabis, but it's just about joint rolling. But guess what? You click on another thing, all of a sudden you're ordering cannabis online. So that's interesting because normally they wouldn't be there in person. There's very, very few producer, processor, retailers. Uh, and when they are there, you obviously can't see flower at all. So I mean, that's one of the unique things about uh, being online is you can kind of cross sell that. Dr. Dabber is always there. The mini nail, again, Washington Bud Company. Another rec shop here locally, always greener. Cannabis Basics, they're huge. Been around for 25 years. Uh, if you're looking for uh, hemp or CBD products, they're in grocery stores here locally in, uh, in the Northwest, West Coast. The Academy of Science or the Academy of Cannabis Science. Uh, so not too many uh, vendors, you know, normally you would see hundreds of vendors, um, but for whatever reason, decided not to participate. So that's pretty much HempFest in a nutshell. Uh, we're looking at Vivian McPeak here, kind of doing a, a live thing. And so with that, we're going to just switch over to the panel that I was watching, which is on cannabis and psychedelics. The symposium panel for the 29th year of HempFest, done in a little different way, uh, virtually. Um, I want uh, the participants and the audience to to kind of get a sense of like what it's really like when we're in the park. And um, normally we're under a big top uh, tent, and we're sitting at um, at on, on a dais and sitting alongside each other. 
and uh, the the ocean is is blowing breezes into the tent as people mill about, and um, we're going to do this different way, and we're just going to pretend that they're all there. I would like to go ahead and introduce myself first. I'm going to be your moderator and panelist, um, Dr. Allison Drazen. Um, I have been a psychologist for 27 years. And a couple years ago, Dr. Sunil Agarwal tapped me at a Hempfest uh, backstage symposium and said, hey, I heard that you're a psychologist. Um, prior to that, um, he only had known me as an edible company owner. Then I had been a cannabis edible company owner for 10 years. And he was like, um, since medical has ended, he's like, I'm opening this new cutting edge clinic. And, um, you know, do you think that you have an interest? And for me, my heart has always been in um, medical cannabis and on the medical side of things, um, even though all cannabis use is is medical use. Uh, and I was like, that sounded really cool. So I joined the Ames Institute in 2018, and we do cannabis-assisted psychotherapy as well as ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, and I support clients who are using psilocybin and other forms of psychedelics with integration and helping them do set and setting, and we'll talk more about that during our panel presentation. Um, next, I would like to go ahead and introduce, have my panelists introduce themselves. Eric, why don't we start with you? Thank you, Allison. Uh, my name is Eric Boone, and I am delighted to be with all of you today. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Uh, I actually am fairly new to the psychedelic space. I'm one of the, the cannabis uh, business executives that has uh, gradually started to make the, the transition into this space. And I come from a, about a 12-year background in, uh, in the medical cannabis space. I started in uh, 2008, 2009, when I took the helm of one of the first uh, publicly traded medical cannabis-related companies. So we got to see a lot of the sort of the early uh, wild, wild west days of um, public finance and cannabis. I've really seen that uh, develop a great deal over the past decade. There were some, uh, I think it is safe to say, some problematic uh, developments within that industry as we saw uh, perhaps a, a bit of too much corporate greed drive into the, the cannabis space. So one of my main goals in, in sort of making this transition over to the psychedelic space is to act as a, a bit of a, a steward and a guard uh, to hopefully uh, prevent a lot of the, the more nefarious and, and, and less um, spiritually driven entities from maybe flooding the space uh, similar to what we saw in cannabis. Uh, if that's an effort in futility, I don't know, but we'll, we'll have to see. Uh, the primary uh, purpose of, of my being here today is, is to contribute to the conversation, of course, but uh, my team and I are, are developing uh, a technology around the tracking and tracing of the uh, of, uh, microdosing experiences, uh, depending on what um, type of substance you use. Uh, so I, I'm looking forward to exploring more of the, the technological uh, developments within the space um, and bring, uh, I guess, based on the, the illustrious background of, of this panel, I probably bring a little bit more of a layperson's perspective to the industry uh, from that standpoint as well. So I also um, approach this panel with a, a great deal of humility 
and um, hope that I can, can keep up with all of you to a certain degree. So uh, thank you very much for having me and I'll uh, send it back to you, Alice. Not hearing you, Allison. Not hearing anybody. Can you hear me now? Yes. Um, technical difficulties. Um, we're all good. Salome, what, would you like to go next, please? Sure. Thank you so much, Allison. Thank you, Eric. Nice to meet you, Jim. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. I, you know, I have so much respect and love for the Hemp Fest collaborations and the community and 29 years of having a gathering to celebrate a master plan for me is just a phenomenal piece of human humility and human um, human compassion. So I'm very delighted to be here as well. And a little bit of my background. So I wear several different hats. My main hat is um, as a clinical counselor um, who does a lot of work now um, in, in the psychedelic space. So I support individuals in ceremonies and outside of ceremonies. Um, half of my time is in ayahuasca gatherings um, and the other times is with my own one-on-one -on -one coaching um, where I help individuals in a three to six month period um, and specifically with a deep dive with psilocybin. So five to eight grams. And um, within that time, um, I also support in, in other ways as well. Um, sometimes my clients do take uh, a ketamine dose. Um, sometimes um, there's a mixture of psilocybin and ayahuasca together if they definitely have like more of the gut and body issues. And it's just very much an organic process um, for each person to bring their inner healer to the, to the foreground. Um, my other hat from 2015 to 2018 was an organizer of a cannabis conference in Vancouver, um, which really brought together the science, spirituality, and, um, and history of, of the master plant cannabis alongside with the other um, entheogens in the last year. And my final hat currently is one of the founding members of the Canadian Psychedelic Association, which is an umbrella organization that um, we thought was really necessary at this time because there's so many pockets of us in the States as well, um, but in Canada where, where I'm mostly focused in, um, where people are, communities are doing wonderful work, but we're not all united. And so it was very important for us to look at circle of care, best practices, ethics, um, just like a governing body um, in, in other um, fields like medicine or counseling or social work and um, just kind of creating this from the ground up. Thank you. Thank you, Salome. Jim, you're up. Okay. Well, I'm, uh, I'm Jim Fadiman and I've been involved in psychedelics longer than Hempfest has been in existence. Mm -hmm. um, and after many years of total immersion only in very high dose um, psychedelics uh, for individuals, I ended up being one of the major representatives of, the, of discovering the values of microdoses. Um, and I don't run ceremonies and I don't do integration. 
but I answer an awful lot of mail from a lot of parts of the world. Uh, and for example, after this program, a physician has written me and said, can a client of can a client who wishes to microdose do that safely, given that a relative has been bipolar? Uh, because as we know, um, lots of groups who have mental illness have been basically frozen out of all the research uh, under the theory that it's going to hurt them. And when I ask for evidence, the answer is, since we never let them in, we have no evidence. So those are the kind of things I deal with. Um, and I recently, and much to many people I know surprise, have just um, published a book without the word psychedelics in it and the word microdose only in one footnote. And it's called um, the, Your Symphony of Selves. And it's about something that is very useful in integration and we may or may not discuss it. Um, but my, my interests, it's wonderful to, to have something going on visibly that doesn't re relate back solely to psychedelic experience. So, and I've, uh, I'm thrilled to be here. This is, this is a, a kind of a stretch for me. And in terms of keeping up with the rest of you, I feel that same feeling um, that Eric does, which is um, I'm already aware from the introductions how much you all know and are doing. And I'm just so excited that not only you all exist, but we can talk about it and we can record it and we can let other people know what we're doing because I've had a lot of years when none of that was possible. Thank you so much, Jim. This is actually the first time um, in Hempfest and Hemposium's history that we've actually had a panel that allowed us to talk about psychedelics as, as a topic matter. So this is really exciting for me and it's really wonderful to have all of you here. Um, and we're just gonna go ahead and start. We have lots of questions and we're just gonna go ahead and jump on in. All right. All right. What is cannabis psychedelic psychotherapy? repeat that again. What is cannabis and or psychedelic psychotherapy? Who would like to start with that? Salome? Sure, definitely. So cannabis psychotherapy, for me, um, cannabis is an incredible medicine of the mind, body, and spirit. And I can speak about my own experiences with how the psychotherapy has worked in, in regards to cannabis, whereas when I take this medicine, oftentimes I tell my, you know, my clients and my friends is that it's a mental purge for me. It gives me a space um, to really have my mind um, be activated and my, the thoughts that I would necessarily not have the space and time for to, to come to the surface. And once this mental purge is out, um, then I'm able to really connect and come back to my body and um, be able to open up the spiritual um, insights of, of, you know, of um, what potential next steps are, what connections are, where the healing and compassion and forgiveness could lay. lay. And so I use the same template um, for, for my clients, especially those who are working through illnesses um, you know, as all of you being so connected to cannabis know, um, when, when clients are using it, patients are using it for 
their cancer, for example, and it's high doses of THC, and they're just coming to terms with what the psychoactivity of the medicine is like, then it's really grounding them in, in practices of, um, of stretching, of yoga, of journaling, of art, of walks in nature, um, and meditation to be able to ground themselves in their body to access the other healing energies. That was wonderful. Thank you, Salome. Uh, one of the aspects I'm going to add to it is, that, so at our clinic, we do cannabis-assisted psychotherapy. Um, and that has two different veins in that um, we do have a lot of oncology patients who have never used cannabis in their lives. And we give them a safe space to try using you know, THC products. We get a lot of people here who are like, oh, I only want CBD because they're afraid of any sort of psychoactive properties of the THC. So we create a space here where people can practice. Um, it's, uh, we work in conjunction with another, um, with a consulting group that helps them find the exact cultivar that is appropriate for what's going on and what they need at that time. So for example, someone who is experiencing high levels of depression, um, SMJ and Mary Brown may refer them to like um, a higher limonene or um, a, a lighter terpene. So something like um, Durban poison or Durban treat or one of those um, high limonene, high pinene strains. And then they would come here and we have um, a volcano and um, there's no intention that when we do practice uh, the safe using of cannabis, there's no intention. It's just, let's play with this and see how it feels. And now we also do cannabis assistant psychotherapy where um, there is more intention and there is more of a therapeutic focus. And it um, I say that it's kind of like um, sitting in your living room and taking a couple bong hits and you just feel really comfortable to be able to share the things that you might not otherwise feel comfortable sharing. And so um, those are those are how we do cannabis uh, assisted psychotherapy. And now for our, our psychedelics, um, we have patients who are oncology patients um, I work with clients who are at end of life and want to, to practice death. And um, that's where we use the ketamine psychotherapy. And there is intention and there's a focus on set and setting and dose. And it's very purposeful. Um, the same for um, other, uh, we have depression, anxiety, uh, people with extreme PTSD, complex PTSD. Um, I have several clients who are dealing with COVID related anxiety that are really, really taking to the use of psychedelics and being able to process that anxiety and using psychedelics. I also help with integration for people who, like I said, procure psychedelics in other places. And I have to say for me personally, as a, as a therapist and a psychotherapist, um, practicing for as long as I have that psychedelics and cannabis are the best tool in my toolbox. Uh, my master's was in art psychotherapy, and I used to feel like using the art to tap into the unconscious material was the best way to get to that material. Um, I have since, in my practice here, found that psychedelics and cannabis really have helped to open up the mind and the heart especially. I like to say that um, without psychedelics, there's a disconnect right here in the neck between the head and the heart, and psychedelics open this up and allow 
the heart to come through and allow a connection between the mind and the heart. Do the rest of you want to add or? I just feel like, you know, uh, it's so wonderful to see, uh, particularly the cannabis psychotherapy um, appearing as, an, as a way of uh, improving the flow of psychotherapy because one of the problems I know, I've actually been a psychotherapist at one point and realizing that having done psychedelic therapy, I couldn't stand conventional therapy. It just felt like I was walking through molasses. Um, but to, to feel how that shift can happen and simply you're saying to the client, would you, if you're actually here to make changes and not reinforce your defensive system, we can really make it easier for you. And what a gift. I'm just so thrilled with what both of you are doing. It's, it's, it's probably one, you know, next to being involved in the cannabis um, world taking shape, it's probably one of the coolest things that I've done. And I, I would I imagine Salome would, Salome would probably agree. Yeah, absolutely. Especially being able to um, just hold people in, in this space and also like support people stepping into the facilitation and, and space holding right now, because, you know, I, I, my cord is in the spiritual realms and I listen to a lot of podcasts and I have my own channels of, you know, what we're going through. And it does feel like we're going through a transition time, a bottleneck of human ascension. And if we, because the pressure is building, we're also kind of getting with the, as the pressure builds up, we, we have more things coming to the surface. It's kind of like one of the doctors I listened to, Dr. Zach Bush, he talked about it like the second law of thermodynamics. He says that any system that is in isolation actually goes through more entropy. So it goes through more chaos. And right now it feels like so many of us are actually going through major isolation, whether it's because of COVID or because of different issues in the world. And so when we're going into isolation, more chaos is present. And what better way to just be with each other and thank goodness, like Jim is saying, that we have access to these incredible um, plant teachers to hold us and guide us into dropping our defenses and like Allison, you're saying just being more into the into the heart and trust. I was um, struck by when you introduced yourself and talked about cannabis as a master plant. <laughs> I went in two directions because it's a term I don't use or I haven't used till now. And part of me was, um, what are the what are the plants that kind of are under the master? That was one way. And the other is our mistress, are there mistress plants as well? Or are we just being, you know, politically correct and there are no more feminine descriptors i wasn't sure are there mistress plants <laughs> it's a really good question i guess master in the sense of um the the plants that are available to us that can that have a healing potential across a large spectrum and so ayahuasca san pedro Wachuma, um or peyote um cannabis of course and then psilocybin mushrooms sure and okay thank you <laughs> Yeah. And like, tobacco, of course tobacco as the container as the holder for the for the prayers yeah 
Wilson, we're back to you. <laughs> what is the difference between medically centered psychedelic use and tripping with my friends at a concert or camping? <laughs> Who would like to take this on? Come on, Eric. <laughs> He's been muted. Oh, okay. Oh, well, okay. Um, sure, I'll take a stab at this. I'm, I'm afraid that I, um, I might not be able to uh, speak too knowledgeably to the, uh, the medically centered psychedelic use, but I could speak pretty extensively to the tripping with my friends at a, a concert. Um, I, I can say that my, my initial foray into psychedelics came about 25 years ago. Uh, in the form of uh, LSD. We had some fantastic LSD going around the Central Valley of California in the late 90s and, and early 2000s. And um, the, the obvious exclusion from this is the, the concept of set and setting probably wasn't really broadly known in the late 90s. Uh, but we, th there was a, a very distinct difference. That, I mean, there were times where, you know, I, I'd be out with, there was one friend of mine uh, who we, we took this journey together, and I, I won't share any more information about him, but let's say that he's a, a very successful uh, research physician right now. So we both uh, experienced uh, quite a bit of uh, intellectual growth as a result of kind of resting ourselves out of our, um, that self-centricity that uh, kids have so much, uh, really thinking that this is all a narrative uh, revolving around them. Uh, being able to, I, I think that perhaps taking it even at a, it, we run a risk of, of perhaps getting into this too early and uh, running a, a risk of, of damaging developing minds, but then there's also a tremendous potential of, of attacking that ego at a, a transformative period of life. And in those early 20s, um, you know, perhaps we could, we could mitigate some runaway egos, um, particularly in my cohort if we were to apply this a little bit more. So I, I think that there is a, you know, there's a, a distinct difference in, in the two schools of thought, but uh, coming from the perspective of, of someone who uh, was just going out for a trip, there, there are times where you're looking at it recreationally and uh, perhaps set and setting was not as uh, stringent, but then there are other times where you, you pretty much facilitate that naturally. Uh, the, the mind seeks out a proper set, uh, a proper question to attack. And then, and then you, you inherently are drawn toward a more comfortable ambiance in which to explore those questions. So uh, I, I think that the, the, um, the importance of medically controlled psychedelic research is, is unparalleled. And before that really existed, we were kind of stumbling our way through the dark to try to get there. So I, I'm delighted to see the, the, the evolution that's happened in this regard. And I can't wait to hear um, the other panelists' response to that as well from a, a more scientific point of view. Oh, um, one, of the, one of the things that, that I do is I ask people questions. And since I talk to large groups, I get lots of answers. And there was a, a group of Santa Cruz students with considerable experience, all undergraduates, and I was asking them to fill out a form about something about their trip experience. And what I got was from a number of them that said, I started simply to have fun. Gradually, 
I've noticed that I'm less neurotic. My schoolwork is better. Uh, and I'm basically like people better and I'm liked more by other people. So it was like an inadvertent improvement, um, which given that I was a kind of righteous prig that said, if you're not taking a high dose with two guides, you know, you're wasting your time. Uh, it was valuable for me to get that um, gently rising, raising the floor of your psyche is probably in the long run more useful and better, better integrated than, um, you know, kind of going from the cellar to the, to the roof in one, you know, in eight hours. So tripping um, has the, the set of saying, I'm open to experience. And often the setting is set pretty nicely, which is you're going to a concert or you're doing with friends. And that's a pretty good set. Yes, people get in serious trouble, but they get in serious trouble. Um, people's capacity to get in serious trouble is one of the more uh, negative, creative acts that we are capable of. So everything that, anything you do that, that prevents people from having problems, smart people will get around it. So that's, that's no longer an issue for me. Um, and so I think tripping gets devalued um, by people in the therapy side and um, therapy gets devalued a lot by trippers and uh, neither of them quite understand that they're both in the same game, just playing it at different maybe volumes. I would agree. Um, I think it's interesting that prior to the work that I've been doing here, um, I would have said that I was just, um, I was just tripping, going camping and just tripping. But I've also now seen the value and the, the enormous propensity um, to support people's mental health. And so sometimes the line does get blurred between what's just a trip and what is for, for sound mental health or for some positive, you know, um, health. And, and it's, um, I think it really depends on the person um, and how that they really want to um, identify with what they're doing. Because it, now that we're starting to talk about this more, there is more discussion of set and setting. And you could be a day tripper, uh, afternoon tripper, and you can set your own set and setting. One of the things that I find that's different is the aspect of integration and intention that is different than, say, just going out to the woods and, you know, eating a bunch of mushrooms. And that is um, intention. Um, while most of my clients, we set their intentions in advance, um, I tell them just to be fluid with that intention as they're going into their psychedelic session. Because oftentimes, just because you set that intention doesn't mean that your unconscious mind um, wants to go down that path. It may have another flow for you and should be open to that flow. The other aspect of that is not a part of just day tripping is integration. Um, and, and that is being able to come back after your psychedelic session and begin to integrate what you learned on that journey uh, into your everyday life. Yep. Yeah, I would, I love this question. I feel that, you know, for me, the set and setting has always been so important. Um, and there's the, the piece around source too, and not just the source of the medicine and where it's coming from, what kind of consciousness it's being cultivated, but rather than all of this is really about the connection to source and the connection to our own 
unity and and you know that's that's the place where we get so much of the healing because for humans the worst thing that can happen again is that isolation you could deprive people of food and water and they'll still be able to have you know but if you put them in in um, isolation a lot of times they'll go into um mental breakdown very quickly and so we are just we are an, a whole entity all of us are you know there's obviously the unity consciousness is a, is a big piece here and so i remember in one of my first experiences it was actually with mdma and i was such a novice like 22 in taiwan and i went to a tiesto um concert with 10,000 people and it was one of my first times with MDMA and I went to the second level of, of the concert space, airplane hangar, and I looked down and there were 10,000 people pulsating at the same time with the music and I'll never get that out of my head like that, or out of my heart, out of, out of my experience because that was one of those points where the unity consciousness, I embodied it and I realized what, and I didn't even know anything about it at that time. But that's where I feel like, Austin, you're so right, the integration of what happened then. And now it's more of a co-creation with the medicine. So, okay, I'm going into pattern, I'm going into the pattern default mode. I'm going into collapsing a pattern that has not, is not serving me anymore. And it's a trauma, a fear, um, a belief or a desire. And now I'm gonna go in with the intention and I'm gonna bring all of myself forward to the intention and to the work. And I'm gonna be with someone who's going to help me through it. And we're gonna be collaborating with the medicine that way. And I'm also gonna surrender. And if the medicine brings in another trauma, it's gonna be okay. And I'm gonna be able, or a bliss, um, a bliss state, then it's gonna be okay. And I'm, I'm, I'm gonna to surrender to that. But that area of co-creation, it makes me really excited because then people want to show up. And it's not just being a passive, bystander you're in the court in your life and making those changes thank you uh, we're gonna we got about 30 minutes left so we're gonna plow through a couple more of these um questions can a psychedelic experience be considered a legitimate spiritual experience like one would experience in a religious context yes what's the next question <laughs> Anyone else have anything they want to add to that? I agree with you. Yeah, there's um, there's an article this morning talking about a book, and the article was saying, "Is it possible that early Christianity and other religions at the time were actually high when they reported all those visionary experiences, etc., cetera, etc.?" Cetera. And of course, the Every culture we know that's had access to psychedelic plants and fungus has used them. So the question is, is it, I think we can do it the other way by now, just by the numbers, which is since more of us have had mystical experiences with psychedelics, I think the question is, how can we verify and validate that people who say they've had a mystical experience without psychedelics, um, are they, is that credible? Anyone? Um, I think that there's a lot of validity to that. Um, and it makes you question the Bible even more. Well, there was the well, uh, early, mid-1960s, the, the Good Friday experiment, where they did the double blind. 
that that gave us one. Uh, th- there needs to be more research uh, because th- there was a there was a study done uh, out of Boston College. I, I don't know much detail about it, but there was a double blind study. Jim, can you fill in on that? Double blind study on Easter Sunday, and the sermon was upstairs with the regular congregation, and it was the sound was piped down into the basement where there were twenty five divinity students. Houston Smith and a couple of other people. Half of those people had placebos and half had uh, a reasonable dose of, I, I think psilocybin, might have been LSD. And surprise, within an hour or so, everybody could tell who got the placebo. <laughs> <laughs> and there was a follow-up study 25 years later of the people who, who had been uh, taken a psychedelic, and they a number of them had become ministers and were still ministers. And basically, um, it had been the the pivotal event in their religious training. That's really cool. Yeah, it's, it's beautiful. And I feel that it's so exciting that we're in a culture of remembering and now actually being able to test our remembering because, you know, the, the scientific parts of us wants to be able to figure it out as well. But, you know, the indigenous in the Amazon, um, the Kogi in Colombia, the Iwanawa in Brazil, the Shapiko in Peru, they've, they've known this for centuries, right? They can communicate with plants and animals and archetypes and different layers of our consciousness and each other. And, you know, they, they've tapped into it for much longer. Then there's the yogic traditions who've worked with cannabis deeply and within their meditations. And then now the history, you know, shows that it, it was found in, in Israel and very much, you know, that um, cannibalism connected to um, the history of Christ and using the, you know, the, the anointed oil. Um, and and so it's, it's so special to be at this, you know, crossroads of all these different um, religions and history that have been impacted by plant medicines. And for me, I feel that now the veil is even thinner and it, you don't even have to go to Brazil or to the Amazon, right, to experience it. We're so lucky that the, the plants, the medicine's coming to us and that the opening is so much, like you need so much less medicine. I see with my clients now, Whereas before, I think, you know, six years ago, we would have to drink so much Aya, and now I'm so happy that we have to take less um, to open so much more. And um, it's, it's truly a gift for the sustainability aspect of, of the medicines as well. Thanks, Salome. Next question. How significant is the setting of intention for both large and microdose experiences and what are the best practices for intention setting and tracking? <laughs> well, uh, let me talk to microdosing because we can handle it, which is set and setting um, is not particularly important. It's kind of the same level of set and setting you use for aspirin. And with the exception that if you're outside the world of which you don't have control, is terrible enough, is really terrible. Microdosing is not a good idea because um, your level of awareness and sensitivity does go up. And since these are all things not under your control, um, it's not a good time. Other than that, um, 
people use it under times of stress and depression and so forth. Um, and, and because it's, it, it helps high dose, very different. Um, I've been a fanatic on the availability and usefulness of guides, um, forever, um, simply because good set and setting situation, substance, sitter, etc., um, allows you to go farther, safer than you'd go on your own. What do you consider um, a high dose, Jim? Oh. <laughs> well, let me do LSD because the, the numbers are, are clearer to people. Um, microdose is 7 to 12 micrograms. Concert mm -hmm. dose, 50 to 100. Psychotherapeutic, 100 to 200, meaning you still have your identity and you still, still think you're... Uh, your trauma is of, of interest. Uh, above 200 and moving towards 400, you go beyond your personal identity. Uh, you're capable of transcendence. You're capable of, of standing, in a sense, um, uh, in the light of God without being burned. Um, and you then see your psychodynamics as a, a set of somewhat uninteresting issues that belong to a small part of yourself. So say 400, 200, 150, and, and 10. And, and actually, I have a secret group of, of people who've reported to me at one microgram, um, but with, with remarkable improvements in chronic conditions, both mental and physical, but I don't want to report on those because that, that even freaks out the microdose crap. I do know people who have microdosed um, a little too much, even at the, um, you know, uh, 0.10 or, or, or 0.3, um, and they um, have had more uh, psychedelic effects than others do. Uh, I think it's kind of an individual. It's, it's different than... Um, I find that plant medicine is different than say your average SSRIs where like this one dose is you take this SSRI and this is like the dose for you. I feel that with plant medicine and psychedelics that you kind of have to find your sweet spot. Uh, and that's what I work with my clients on using journals to track, like starting at, um, you know, 10 micrograms and, and seeing how that does. And then journaling, maybe doing a week at that at that dose and then trying another, you know, adding another microgram. It's um, but it's finding the sweet spot that's for the individual. And um, it's well, a curious piece to that, which is originally. On our website, microdosingpsychedelics.com, 10 micrograms, 10 micrograms. And we maybe have a thousand subjects of that. And then since we ask people after 30 days, what are you actually now doing now that you're on your own? You're not, you don't have to listen to us. Great many people said that's too much. So they're taking eight or seven, six, uh, psilocybin the same. We used to have 0.2 to 0.5 was the range we recommended. We now have 0.1 to 0.4 because more people said, I'm having that, that just at the edge, I'm just feeling maybe a little high. And that the, you know, the nice thing about microdosing, if you're feeling a little high, that's too much. Yes. The problem is people who think microdosing should be a micro trip. You know, it's kind of like one bite of chocolate souffle instead of a great big one. And, and that's simply not true. Yes, I would agree. There's actually a lady in the uh, in our chat who makes some delicious chocolates that are 
um, that are 0.10 um, and, and you're not supposed to feel it, you know? And so that's, um, that, that's part of the, 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 the joy of microdosing is that you can do it on a regular basis without feeling like that your ego is, is dying or that you're separating from yourself. So. Yeah, absolutely. And I love, um, again, like co-curation um, with, with clients and also bringing in the other herbs. Like if there's someone who is in a more depressive state, I would say with the psilocybin, I always, always say go with cacao and just get organic cacao powder in the morning and just make it a ritual, you know, pray over your cacao and take your um, tiny bit in Canada. We have several, I'm sure you guys do several companies that um, have powder form of um, lion's mane, kind of maybe similar to Paul Samets's mix, but where they bring in lion's mane, as well as sometimes ashwagandha, you know, more um, neutropathic adaptogens that can calm the body as well. Um, but then the cacao gives a little bit of a boost. And so they can go through their day. And yes, it's, it's that special spot in the middle where I always say it's like water off of a duck's back. Like anything can happen in your day and you're just open. You're open, you're watching, you're accepting. Um, very much like the Buddhist you know, practices of just loving kindness and, um, and, and full acceptance. And, and we see that, that observing your life feeling. Mm -hmm. Um, most important, we found that in people who, who are microdosing for chronic pain, is they report that the literal pain level, for most people, some people it goes down, but most people it stays about that same level, except the difference is I am, I am not in pain, is my pain um, is still very uncomfortable and I don't like it, but it's not me. And it's that shift. So they say, I don't feel, I feel as much pain, but I'm not as depressed, anxious, sad, angry around the pain. It's just something that uh, I'm sorry I have. And that's a, that's, that's a different kind of shift. And it's very much what you're saying, and I really like it. Um, I've been asked to make a disclaimer here that uh, please make sure that you're working with a professional um, and to be responsible in your intake of psychedelics and cannabis. Um, make that disclaimer once more before we end. Uh, I'm going to go on to uh, the next, kind of on with the microdosing. What is the role of microdosing and psychedelics as a mental and physical health support tool? And how can microdosing support ongoing successful either cannabis or psychedelic psychotherapy? Uh, I guess I should at least take part of that. Um, when I talk, I'm talking about what people have told me. And the nice thing is we've got about 3,000 people um, who have told us, including doing a daily checklist, plus the endless mail. So people say microdosing seems to help me rebalance whatever is out of balance, being depression, being migraines, uh, being uh, menstrual unhappiness. All of those seem to rebalance. Um, so that's, that allows you to function better. The question of whether it's useful as a supplement to the, to the more intense therapies 
All I can say at this point is I'm meeting therapist after therapist who indicates if you're if my clients have microdosed before sessions, which I cannot recommend because I'm in the United States and everything good is illegal. Um, I would be I'm very happy, however, if they show up having microdose because therapy goes so much more quickly. So very much the way you talked about cannabis with your patients where it's easier to work through material if you're less attached to it. And microdosing, cannabis, um, deep breathing, all those other things we all say at the beginning of speeches, um, all help. I agree. I have clients who, now that we're working you know, virtually like this, um, I can't control what they do in their own house. And so oftentimes that they will acknowledge that they have microdosed um, or that they've used cannabis that morning. Um, and um, it tends to be a very um, profound session. Um, you know, I, I can't condone that, you know, because it's, you know, as long as that they have taken that responsibility, it, it becomes a weird, it's a weird legal issue. But it, I do see that the, um, the sessions that when they've acknowledged that, that they are pretty profound. <laughs> Another thing to keep in mind with microdosing is that, you know, we're taking we're taking small strokes, not not broad uh, generalizations. So I, I think that tracking and you mentioned journaling earlier is so much more critical because that we're we're not making large bounds. We're sometimes taking two baby steps forward, one baby step back. You have good days, you have bad days. Uh, so when you're microdosing. Um, a, a great analogy that Jim used actually, it's the difference between like if you're a python eating a, eating a gazelle or, or eating a rat. Uh, you know, you, you, you take down a gazelle, you're, you're not going to eat again for a few days. And so that's, uh, that, that's not something that, that you can just do every day, whereas microdosing allows you to take those more gradual baby steps. But if you're not tracking it, if you're not um, checking in with yourself, then it becomes a kind of a random and unscientific task. You mentioned journaling, just to same, shamelessly self-promote. You know, we've got the the micro tracker app uh, that we the, the beginning of that. And there are links to it in the chat, both uh, the the Google Store and the Apple Store. Uh, it starts out with a, a well-being daily check-in, where we ask questions, uh, and that well-being daily check-in is, um, you know, it might look erringly familiar to Jim because we uh, we borrowed Jim profoundly uh, from him to produce that. But again, if you can sort of get some repetition, understand on a daily basis over time what your moods look like, then you can know if that set that you've established to yourself, are you progressing or uh, is it going anywhere? So if you're going to microdose, I think it's very important to do it in, in as scientific a manner as possible. Can you um, please uh, post a link in the chat um, to your app, Eric? Of course. And um, you and I will talk as well because I'd like to learn more and, and see how that can help my patients. So that's one uh, from the Google uh, website. You will notice that, um, that Jim Fadiman and his website is a partner. Cool. <laughs> I guess I am then. <laughs> he might not know that, but he is. <laughs> All I know is I've been very excited and supportive of the idea of an app that is designed to help users have a better experience. That's its primary use. 
its secondary use is research. Everything else out there, including our, our stuff on our site, was designed as research so that we were, you know, we were the kind of uh, taking in other people's information and eating it and making use of it. But uh, Eric and the team are, are, have developed an app which really has, um, which is hopefully, you know, less research and more value. Okay. So I'm very excited. I've not seen the app uh, and I have been asked several times to comment on it. But if I did that, I would have to acknowledge my ignorance of everything I would see other than what was obvious. So I'm, I'm delighted that I'm part of it. And uh, it's kind of like being, you know, finding out you were invited to the birthday party after all. Yeah, really good. And I feel that with the, with the apps, it's so nice to bring in the other aspects of the equilibrium of the balance within, within the body and within the, um, the people that we support. So apps that count the water intake, apps that count the, the, the healthy biome, what we're eating, the sugar intake, because it's not just the microdosing. And I always tell you know, my clients, I'm like, okay, if you're going to really do this, it's a revamping of your whole system because you know, the biome, the gut biome is so important in that balance of the dopamine and serotonin. And if we don't get that, then you're just going to keep going and then drop off um, and come and have, have spikes. And it's not a time to have these kinds of spikes anymore. We have to stay in a, in a grounded space now with everything that's going on around us. And we're, we're in charge of that. It's, a, it's actually a self-responsibility to stay in that um, center of safety that we create for ourselves and the medicines help to hold for us. So I'm really excited, Eric, for to check out your uh, microdosing platform and what Jim has added to it and um, just how we can bring in more things um, that are supportive for the, for the equilibrium to, to take place. The other thing I want to add about microdosing is... Um, is that yeah? When I was in my when I was in my practicum for my counseling program, um, I remember a, a homeless gentleman was coming in for free counseling, and he he would be connected with cannabis. That was his form of pain reduction and pain management. And I remember this was in 2014. My clinic supervisor said he cannot come here if he is high. And I remember how like, devastated I was because he wouldn't come otherwise. There's no way he was going to come and sit and face his pain and face physical and emotional pain without that support and that hug and that wrapping around of the safety around him. And I'm not for using plant medicines as crutches. Absolutely not. There's a point where we come into our center where it, it's good. I really feel that we can come to that place. Um, and it's also a personal choice for everyone to, to choose that. And so Alison and Camille, like I'm so happy that you guys have an actual clinic because we in Canada are still, we took a huge step back and we don't have these kinds of clinics yet. Um, well, there's like field trip and Numinous is doing great work as far as like ketamine and the, but as far as cannabis, and to have cannabis circles, healing circles, talk therapy through cannabis. These, this is still, I think, oh my gosh, after so many years, it's still innovative. And um, thank goodness that at least you guys are setting the par 
and setting an example of, of what a holistic center looks like with plant medicines. Thank you. Um, you know, it's really Sunil, Dr. Leanna Standish has partnered with Sunil Agarwal and she does work with ayahuasca. Um, and it's really, you know, they've decided to take this leap of faith and, and do cutting edge work. Sunil and Leanne are both known for doing cutting edge work and being able to have a clinic where that we're pushing the boundaries with insurance. We're pushing the boundaries with psilocybin. I was just informed this morning that, um, there's an attorney here in Washington that is willing to support um, the use of psilocybin in terminally ill cancer patients. And so we have tapped some of our oncology patients here to see if they want to participate and push this envelope. And there we've, we've got about four that are interested in, in moving forward and, and, and testing uh, psilocybin therapy here in Washington state. So it's pretty cool. It's, it's really cool. Um, I, we have a bunch of questions in our chat. And so, and we're starting to, to get to when you're having fun, you know, you're starting to run out of time like we are. So um, I'm just going to read um, some of these questions. Maria um, has asked, does it take longer for a larger dose of psilocybin versus a microdose? For instance, if if, if she follows the Fathomon um, protocol um, on one day on, two days off, if she decides to take a larger dose once a week, will efficacy be affected when she does a, a microdose? Um, Jim? Well, maybe. <laughs> I mean, it's not the kind of research that anybody's going to do except uh, the few thousand individuals who will tell us. So if she wants to do that, uh, let us know. It, it feels a little unnecessary and a little over the top. The idea of doing a major session once a week seems excessive to me because it really interferes with integration. You know, it's like putting a double exposure on film. If you have more information that you can't read, that isn't a benefit. But if you're going to do it, um, the microdosing probably will seem to you as much less interesting and valuable. So uh, just be careful. What I see, Jim, is I'll have clients who will do that week um, uh, of microdosing, and then they might take a break for a week, and then do a large dose, and then take a break for a week, and go back to the microdose. It's very interesting. Everyone, you know, they kind of try it their own way to, to see what works for them and what doesn't work for them. Do you think that before someone starts um, uh, a journey of microdosing that they should do a large uh, journey prior to beginning the microdosing journey? Yeah. Let me just... Yeah. <laughs> oh, good, because I'd say no. So that's terrific. <laughs> but I don't think I have any uh, anything to stand on. Um, the, the point is, microdosing is not a small psychedelic. It's different. That's kind of like saying, should I get a lot of rest and eat well? before I do a large um, trip? Or should I exercise till I'm really fatigued? And should I be on a very strict dieta? Well, the answer is maybe to all of those questions. So that, um, like the guy, like, like the hucksters on television said, I don't do individual diagnosis. I just sell you something at the end of the program. In our case, it's I don't do individual diagnosis. And 
there, if we had a set of rules that work, there'd be lots and lots of people not doing it that way anyway. So if you're working with a, with a person, a professional or, a, or someone who has a lot of experience, probably they will know more about you and about the interaction than any rule we can do over a public forum. Salome, do you want to? Yeah. Um, so again, I, I haven't touched upon this, but it's for me back, back in the day when I started with ayahuasca, I went deep, very deep, many ceremonies back to back, two years of being in those circles, both as support and as someone who is receiving my own healing. And I think I've, I, I zapped my sympathetic system, like the, the amount of energy that was coming in. I don't, no wonder I had my own psychosis. And I'm so glad I had those experiences because now I can sit with someone who's going through similar things. And I know for many of us, we had to go through those experiences to, to really understand and to, to, to bear witness um, with compassion. And But now I say to my clients, it doesn't have to be uh, sludge ever <laughs> anymore. It can be gentle. And by gentle, I mean, there has to be inner child work prior. That's what I always, and Allison, you're shaking, you're, you're saying yes to this. The inner child work, many of us are ending a cycle of karmic trauma and debt from our family, seven generations or so back here. So we're saying it stops here. So many of us have carried, like I would say, probably 70% of the individuals I work with, it's sexual trauma and myself included. And so sexual trauma is a big one because it's the ultimate taking of power, I would say, right? And it's such a violation, such a deep um, taking of the innocence of, of a child. And so with that, it's so important to take individuals back into that memory very gently, I use the internal family systems model where you take them in meditation, in hypnosis, you take them back into the memory where the um, event happened and they themselves as their higher self come in and take the child out of that memory and integrate it back into the present moment so that they can just be here now. And a lot of the anxiety gets totally cleared and a lot of the depression, which is suppression also gets cleared. So that's number one. Then it's starting them with more, um, just a little bit of like um, family dynamics, like why they're reacting to a certain family member or to mother, father. Where, where do they give their power away? Where do they uh, take someone else's power? A lot of forgiveness work around that. And then like within this time, it's potentially microdosing so that they can open up slowly, slowly. And then probably in, week six from the three-month program we go into a deep dive so that they have major tools like sometimes in those ayahuasca ceremonies i was getting so tumbled around <laughs> what was up and what was down <laughs> and it was a bit too much but i'm so glad i had support around me during that time and so um i would say a really great protocol um, with someone who has been there has gone through it is is really supportive and then big big dose and then integrating what happened in the big dose, all the insights, and then having the, the chance to integrate over some time. I find that developing a therapeutic relationship is key. 
Um, it's what separates it, you know, from maybe tripping with your friends to creating um, uh, a safe and warm environment where the, um, the patient can release and feel comfortable releasing. Um, you're right. I have a lot of trauma, a lot of sexual trauma clients um, who I see that are looking to um, move forward from the past and creating that uh, really positive therapeutic relationship prior to going on a deep dive is, is, is absolutely key. Absolutely. Um, another question here. Did anyone, did you want to pop in, Eric? I actually, uh, it's it's sort of interesting. We're going back and forth between uh, microdosing and and uh, and more hallucinogenic dosing. I, I wanted to ask kind of a an off a bit of an off base question, but it's based on uh, some of the new research out of North Carolina that's actually tracking the serotonin receptors that that this is by. It, it, the research is seeming to indicate that they might be able to remove the hallucinogenic properties from a psychedelic experience. And so it seems to me that that would potentially kill two birds with one stone. It would, uh, to go back to, to Jim's analogy, it would allow the python to eat the gazelle every day. Would, that begs the question, is a psychedelic experience without a hallucinogenic experience as effective as a psychedelic experience with yeah it's a theoretical question i know but it's it's curious anyway well I, you know it's it's hard to get behind that research even if the defense department under but it, it to me it sounds like you know we found a way where you can go to the symphony but you don't have to hear the music mm -hmm. yeah, it, it, what brings up the body and you'll feel better afterwards and you don't have to worry about your opinion of the music that just feels to me um, you know in the wrong direction and also um, I just have to tell you it ain't dopamine mm. SSRIs may or may not be serogenic serotonin etc but psychedelics if you've noticed um, have a lot of other effects particularly in terms of affection, in terms of caring and loving, which are which are called oxytocin and so forth. So um, just because you can make pretty pictures of the brain with a lot more colored lines is not, um, is not where all the neurons are. More neurons in the gut than in the brain. Just, just leave it at that as to, um, yeah. And, and uh, the idea of taking away one of the, one of the reasons we all use psychedelics um, to me, is 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 pharmacology at its at its commercial worst. Thank you. And and, uh, and, and you know, and they're going to do it, and we'll see. And one of those wonderful things is when you make a statement like this, eventually someone will put it up and say, "See what a jerk he was to say that at that time." When we all take our psychedelics without psychedelic effects every morning, and the world is running fine. I, I'm hoping for that, but I doubt it. Thank you. Yeah, I, I would also agree with this. There's a reason why um, ayahuasca, wachuma, mushrooms, um, cannabis, cannabis can also have the hallucination um, realms. There's a reason why nature created that. And I feel that for, again, for myself in those ayahuasca spaces, not only were we trained that no matter what happened, we would have to pierce through 
So the empowerment, right, pierce through the psychedelic fog if it was getting too much and get to the core of the, of the trauma, whatever we're working on. Um, but also sometimes that psychedelic um, spin and overwhelm to the system broke down parts of my ego that were still controlling. So I feel that nature has created that because we are such strong ego-based entities at times. And so that breakdown for me is, is also important. Um, but again, just having somebody who, just like the psychedelic experience um, where they did it on the, based on the book of the Tibetan, like a rules of death, because many cultures train themselves to die. And at the beginning of the call, Alison talked about helping her clients at end of life. And, you know, this is, we're all like pressure cooker in a, in a death ceremony right now. And so things are gonna get super psychedelic on our planet. You know, I've, I've seen visions of it and, and many prophecies talk about this time of the natural disasters, of the climate change, the climate migration, the mass deaths um, that potentially we're, we're gonna be facing. And so this is now becoming the psychedelic journey and we have to be able to be okay with it. <laughs> but here are humans again being like, let's take it out. <laughs> but that's, that's part of the death process um, of, of surrendering, but also knowing that beyond that is the veil of, of unconditional love um, if we if we surrender you know there's also the aspect of whole plant medicine mm -hmm. and i'm a big proponent for whole plant medicine um and so i feel like you know i have clients who will um who come here oncology patients who have been on marinol and marinol made them super sick we switched them over to whole plant medicine and it's like a whole different person and so um, I'm, I'm, I support whole plant medicine, whether it's with psychedelics um, or with, with cannabis. Because like you said, you, we don't really know enough um, for cannabis. It's about like the terpenes or the cannabinoids. We really don't know enough about even some of those smaller cannabinoids and terpenes and how they may be positively or negatively negatively affecting the individual and to just have a, a laboratory try to uh, recreate a thc molecule and just put it in a jar that's just not the same as you know using whole plant medicine that's my perspective on that um, i'm going to hit another question off the side if your serotonin is lower let's say during the winter is mdma harder to come down because of the surge and dip of serotonin from the experience, is there a recommended dose? <laughs> wow, a recommended dose for someone who is serotonin, which can't be measured in living, living beings. <laughs> so I'd say that's much too hard a question uh, for, for me at least. Uh, and the correct dose is one that you work out with your guide and your other professionals. Um, you don't get it off of some guy on the TV. All right, one last question and then we're gonna wrap up. Are there any particular um, type of diagnosis that shouldn't use psychedelics or cannabis? 
I mean, here in our office, I think that because all of our clients, our patients have to be vetted through our psychiatric nurse practitioners, I know that um, if you're on an antipsychotic um, or you have a thought disorder, that uh, we will not move forward with psychedelics in this clinic. I'm curious what the rest of you, what your perspective is. Yeah, I would say the, some of the, I don't even like these words because they're categorical, but um, some of the most challenging or treatment resistant individuals that I've worked with who have been labeled as bipolar or um, like high, high suicide ideation, um, very, very deep treatment resistance to SSRIs, benzos. And these individuals, I've still ran them through um, psilocybin and brought in the ketamine and brought in the MDMA. But it was, for me, it's the organic matters that have really opened, opened them up. And they were the hardest journeys because the person wants to flee, like their flight or fight response just goes off the Richter scale and they just want to get out of there. So holding them to that presence, and I get goosebumps when I talk about it because it's the energy of the medicine or spirit or their healing forces coming through. And you just have to be so strong in that keeping them here. Like touch your chair, take a breath, keep coming back to your breath. You're here and you're here. Can you see yourself in the memory? Okay, go there now, slowly, slowly come back out. Like there's such a titration process that happens in that moment. And I have to get out of my own way and be hyper-present with what's coming through. Now, is that, you know, did I put myself at risk? Probably working with someone who is, is that treatment resistant. But if I get a yes of working with somebody, and this is where we have to open up this right? The scale of trauma for people, because there are people who are dealing with schizophrenia and with, with bipolar or personality thought disorders. And they, where do they go? Right? How do they, how do they get some relief? And so I would say that's still kind of, those areas are still untouched. And I hope that more and more facilitation can come through with more support for for those, those of our brothers and sisters as well. In, Thank you. in the last week or so, I was um, I was part, a very tiny part of the, the psilocybin summit, and our little part began with a woman describing how her son, 15 years bipolar, endless meds, endless hospitalizations, endless sorrow, turned his life around with microdosing. Okay. So that's one story that I just heard about quote bipolar. And the other is Maps Canada just released a document uh, from an anonymous person about his own turning his life around from uh, serious schizophrenia, meaning feeling that the voices inside of you were not from you, but from outside, and all of them were incredibly negative, to running his life with a combination of some high doses, but mainly microdoses, where the voices now are controlled, he knows who they are, and he has a bunch of positive voices that he listens to, and he has the same negative voices, and he says, I listen to them very little. So these are you know, real people with, who 
who would never be accepted in most clinics for obvious other reasons and who might come to you uh, because you're saying, I don't turn people away who are willing to get helped. Uh, we're at a turning point. And that's one of the reasons that we're having a panel like this is so that people who have been um, either rejected from the various psychedelic possibilities um, can also go online because there are interest groups of all these mental thought disorders, lovely term, um, who talk to each other and who give each other information. So that's where we are. And um, all of my work is what's called citizen science, which is people I don't know from places I don't know who tell me their most intimate parts of their lives and how they've either been benefited or not by the kind of work that I represent. And so that's fortunately we have that source of data because we can't wait for the, the psychopharmaceutical um, mechanistic rule makers to determine when and how we can help people. They're not evil, but the, not, it's the wrong paradigm. Thank you. Thank you so much. I want to thank all of my um, panelists. It has been an honor and a privilege to sit on this panel and to begin to have this conversation in this context in the Hempfest Hemposium um, panel section. Uh, I also want to reiterate, please do not um, attempt these on your own. Please consult a professional um, before you um, try some of the things that we were talking about today. Um, would any of you like to give yourself a plug? In, each of you would like to give yourself a plug before we wrap up? Sure. Eric? Eric? Uh, no, no, I just uh, want to get, once again, I'm humbled to be in the, the, the presence of this group. And, and uh, we did put some additional information about the uh, app in the chat box. Uh, so the links are there, both uh, Android and, um, and iOS store. Uh, it, with regard to the privacy uh, question that someone had, no, all the data are, are stored on your device. Uh, nothing is is transmitted. So uh, the drawback is that you delete the app, you delete your data. Um, we do have we do have uh, some some possibility at some point in the future to use this for a research application. But any time that would happen, it would be very clearly indicated. And, and so we don't we don't mess with anyone's uh, data on those. It's it's uh, there to to help uh, to help. churches in Canada that now have exemption for ayahuasca use as a sacrament. And um, we also have a um, psilocybin for um, therapeutic use for end of life. So six patients have been have received the exemption. And now the next layer of that is to get more um, applications in and also exemption for therapists 
to be able to use it so that they can actually have the work in their clinics instead of us just all being so underground um, right now. And so really collaborating with um, um, Sunil and um, Dr. Sandish and of course, um, Alison in Seattle and um, hoping to expand that across the board in Canada as well. Thank you. Jim? Yeah, um, information about microdosing, very, very basic information, microdosingpsychedelics.com. Um, main use of the site is there's 185 medications and supplements and herbs that people have written to us and said, I was able to microdose successfully while taking or while tapering off the following. So that's a very common question. And the other, and this is pure info commercial, um, which is um, new book, Your Symphony of Selves. Hold it up a little bit. <laughs> um, it's a very different book. Um, it, will, it will shift the way you do integration. Oh, cool. And, and you don't have to do, there are not a lot of exercises and things you have to do. You simply read a couple of chapters and you will notice that you will have let go of a major confusion, which is the illusion that you're a unified being, for which you've never had any evidence. Um, so it's something I've put 25 years into as a kind of side piece, and I'm now seeing how it integrates into the work we're doing, and that's a great relief and joy. So thank you for letting me be part of HempFest. Um, it's, it's really wonderful to be, to be part of the expanding network of, of with the villages talking to other villages and we're all dancing together. And I'm glad I've stuck around for it. So thank you. <laughs> Us too. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you all for giving us some time this morning and um, have a great day. Thanks, Thank Rick. you, Allison. Thank you, Hempfest. Thanks, everyone. Hello, and welcome to Hempfest Symposium. This is our panel on marijuana and with that, we're going to roll this one up. I'm Josh Kincaid. This is The Talking Hedge. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, or don't. And I'm out. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. 99.9% .9 of our DNA is identical. It's a 0.1% that truly makes us different and unique. And that's what the show is about. Find out that 0.1% about your favorite guests. Find out what music they like, their first cannabis experience, and even what their room looked like growing up. But more importantly, or as important, their journey. Learn what makes them unique on Everything is Personal.